Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Thanks for tuning in. If you need more information, just go to jentaylor.net, where I have everything at your disposal from what it's like to live as a mom to 13 kids to my podcast, public speaking, coaching, or purchasing my book. All in one place, jentaylor.net, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Thank you so much for being here. So I have Sean Stevenson today, and most people, if you say the name Sean Stevenson, know who you are. Sean, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. It is a honor to be a part of this experience and to know that you are creating something that's making the world a better place. That's the goal, and I know that's your goal. Um, you've done things a little bit, well, a lot differently than I have, and a lot of that is because our stories are all different, which is what I love about podcasting. So for anyone who does not know, Sean, you were born with something called osteogenesis imperfecta, which is uh, some, it's a disease that causes your bones to be fragile. One thing I was a little confused on is that I know I, I heard in a video you said you could genetically pass this on. Theoretically, 50% of my genetics, according to some experts, have the condition attached to it. And so therefore, if my wife and I decided to have a child, there'd be a 50-50 chance. Um, but they're, they're constantly coming up with new information that is negating the previous information. So it, it's, and, and because they know so little about it, uh, I, I just say, if we want to have them, we're going to have them. We don't want to have them, we don't want to have them. And, uh, you know, we're not too worried about the genetic side right now in our lives. That's great because genetically there was no reason for you to have been no, according, according to the doctors and the specialists. Um, uh, it was a spontaneous mutation, something I was, they were just going about their lives. My mom and dad, they conceived me and somewhere along the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the gestation period um, when the cells are splitting and everything. Um, the, the genetic, precursor to this disorder kicked on and uh, here I am thank god I gotta say there's no no better way to live your life than the way I got it well that's a great way to look at it and that's something now I'm going to jump around a little bit but I want to not forget this thought I saw uh, an interview with your mom where she said you know you have a baby and like every bone in your body was broken when you were born and they yeah. They told your parents, and your dad was there in the delivery room. Uh, this was in 79 you were born, is that correct? Correct. And your child's not going to live more than 24 hours. Um, my first daughter, who's 25 now, I was given the same, the same diagnosis for different reason, but your child's not going to live more than 24 hours. And there is nothing more horrifying than that. And your parents thought, kind of like, well, we got through the first 24 hours. Let's just keep plugging along. Yeah. And then I also uh, saw some information that when you were 11 years old, one of your favorite holidays is Halloween as a kid. Yeah. 
Why was that? Well, you know, there's all the traditional reasons that kids like Halloween that I like to the candies and, and the parties and all that. But, you know, when you're three feet tall and you're in a wheelchair, you can't go anywhere without being stared at. You can't go to the mall and just blend into a crowd by putting on a baseball cap. But one day of the year, you do get afforded that luxury. And that's Halloween because everybody gets dressed up and the little man, the little guy, I should say, little kid in a wheelchair was no longer the odd man out, was no longer the, the weird one, if you will. And it was a very special experience because the one day out of the year that I could finally blend in and I loved it. And then in 88, when you were 11, you broke your leg. How you, you hit it on a door frame, you did something. Yeah, so I was out of my wheelchair, and I joke that when I'm out of my wheelchair, I look like a one of those roly-poly bugs, and I was rolling around on the floor, and my toes caught the corner of the door frame, bent my femur back and twisted it, and it snapped the femur. And if you've ever broken a bone, you know there's a, there's a bit of a time delay between hearing the sound of the snap and feeling the pain, and even though it's only about a split second, you, you just, your mind races through a thousand thoughts. And when you break a femur, first of all, anybody who's never broken a bone, be very grateful. Um, and then the second thing is if you have not broken a femur, be very grateful because out of all the bones, I found the femur to be one of the worst. Um, and it feels like somebody stabs you and is twisting a knife when you have broken a femur. And it was excruciating. And my, uh, I started screaming out loud to my mom. And she dropped everything and ran into the room. And she had to calm me down because I was a mess. And uh, she would do this little game with me where she would just try to get my mind away from the pain. So she would say things like, think about our last vacation. What was your favorite part? Except that day, I had such anger in my veins because I didn't think what I had to go through was all too fair. You know, we, everybody alive goes through things that they feel they didn't deserve, that they, they were unfair, and they didn't ask for them. And those are the ones that we had the hardest time dealing with. And so my mom formulated a question that cut through both hemispheres of my brain and got right to the brain stem and stayed with me from that moment until now. And, the last day of my life it will stay with me she said is this going to be a gift or a burden referring to the osteogenesis imperfecta and you know i thought she was crazy how do, how do you think this is a gift mom but there was something cosmic that happened it was like a, a warm wind just kind of swirled around my body and maybe it was all in my mind maybe it was real i don't know but I got peace that day, even though I was in excruciating pain. I got peace in my heart that this container I was in was not a punishment, that there was a, a greater purpose to it. And, you know, fast forward, what, 27 years later, I clearly have identified what this purpose is, and that is to rid this world of insecurity and they 
people do not need to feel like they're not enough. There's no need to feel like you are deficient of something in life, that you are deficient of wealth, that you are deficient of good looks, that you're deficient of a thin body, that you're deficient of an education. You should never feel like you're not enough. You should always put your attention on what's amazing about you. And, and a metaphor I've been playing with recently that I really love, and I, I got it from a buddy of mine. You know, I'm like a donut. And you can focus on the whole part that's missing. Be like, oh, he's not able to walk. He, he can't be uh, six feet tall like a man his age. He can't, he can't do this. He can't do that. And that's like focusing on a donut, being like, oh, that donut doesn't have a center. That silly little pastry doesn't have a center. Ha, ha, ha. Or you could be like, man, donuts are amazing. You can wrap your fingers around them and dunk them in coffee or hot cocoa or, you know, and donuts can have all different kinds of flavors and different textures. And, you know, a donut should never lose sleep over not being an egg, you know, an English muffin. You know, it's like a donut's a donut. An English muffin's an English muffin. And, you know, some donuts resemble bagels, but we're not bagels either, you know? And so you got to look at not what is missing in you, what is deficient. Look at what you have. Look at what you are good at. You know, I've been a therapist for 17 years now, and I found the secret to happiness. Would you like me to share it? Yes, please, please, please. Okay. So the secret to happiness is to focus on what do you want? That's your goals. What do you have? That's your appreciation. And what do you like? Those are your preferences. So I call it the gap. Your goals, appreciations, and preferences. People that are happy and like really living a fulfilled life, no matter what they are look, looking into the future, what's exciting them and pulling them forward, they're looking to the moment, the present moment, and just so appreciative of what they have. And then they are very clear on their preferences. What do they like? They don't make any... You know, like my wife is amazing. Mindy loves to read and she doesn't make any apologies about spending sometimes four to five hours in a day reading. And that lights her up. She is, she comes up with great business ideas. She comes up with uh, incredible insights about her own spiritual evolution, about our marriage, about our house, whatever it may be from those four to five hours of reading. Because she likes to do that. I like to work out. I like you know, I, I worked out right before this call. And, you know, while working out, I am, I'm in a joy state of pushing my body beyond what it was capable of previous. And everybody has those things that they like. And so what I only, what I only ask people is to look at what do you like and what impact is it having on you? Because some people like, you know, to eat nothing but donuts. And some people like to work out. Some people like to read. Some people like to just mindlessly surf the internet. And I'm not here to judge what's right or wrong, but you have to, in your own heart, in your own mind, ask yourself, is what I like serving me? And if it's not, maybe it's time to upgrade. Wow, I like that a lot. Now, I want to go back um, real quick and talk about the broken bones because you said how painful they are. And you, by the time you're 18 had over 200 broken bones. Yes. I've had three minor and I can't wrap my head around that, but then it's, that was by the time you were 18, but then in the next 10 years you had had none. Is it the working out? Cause you just brought up working out. I want to kind of tie things together. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of a few things. 
Okay. Um, and a lot of experts will disagree with me on that, and that's okay because they're not in my body. Um, <laughs> I think, first of all, just coming out the other side of puberty, um, the body can settle down, so that helps. Uh, but also radically transforming my diet and radically transforming by adding uh, load-bearing, weightlifting, exercising. And then the fourth thing is, and this sometimes gets outside of people's comfort zone, but I've done a lot of work on myself energetically, spiritually. And I believe that the body is a metaphor for the mind. And I just stopped seeing myself as fragile internally. I started to see my bones becoming more like steel or titanium. I started to see my body as limber and able to uh, move with any bouncing in the car that would be driving in, um, any, any bumps that I would hit in my wheelchair. I just started to be more... I would have to go with the flow physically mentality. And so between puberty, between diet, between exercise and the energetic work, I think it has had a phenomenal impact on me. I love that. It, it doesn't matter. This, this certainly isn't a podcast where I worry about offending anyone. You're, you're uh, it's your time. Um, but what, it doesn't matter what you believe in in a higher power or how you believe in science. The body's a lot of energy. And so you're kind of harnessing the energy with your thought process. Am I on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. So I've studied a lot of energetic medicine, um, mm -hmm. things like Louise Hay, Dr. Hammer. Uh, there's a lot of great material out there that is showing that there's more than what we have instruments, instruments to measure. You know, and, and I believe that something's not real to the scientific world or the skeptics world until that we have an instrument to measure it. But sometimes we don't have the instruments quick enough. Like we can know something before we have the measurement tool. And the skeptics only are addicted to the measurement tools. And until they get their measurement tool and they have uh, predictability, you know, they can, they can do it again and again and again, they don't, they're not on board. And that's, that's fine. We need them in this world to have the contrast. I'm somebody that, I would consider myself an early adopter. I can get behind something before there's a measurement tool. As long as I get the results, it feels good and it's good for others. So I'm, an NLP, they call it, is it ecological? Is it good for you, good for you know, others, good for the planet? And if something's ecological, I can move forward before I know why. Awesome. So you, you haven't had broken bones since you were 18 then? No, I had a bad accident in... Uh, July 31st, 2012, no, sorry, 2014. And I was with my dog at the time and I didn't listen to certain people and I thought I was smarter than them. And I, I tethered the dog to my wheelchair. I went in to get the mail at the post office. Uh, my dog got spooked by another dog. He went one way, I went another. Next thing I know, I was laid out flat on the cement and I had fractured my skull and multiple places in my, my right leg, up and down my ribs, my collarbone, my wrist. And I ended up getting bleeding on the brain that caused uh, all kinds of problems. Um, I also had short-term memory loss for a few months. And, you know, that, that fracture session, if you will, that might have happened to anybody that would be thrown at that speed. Um, so I can't guarantee that that wasn't about OI, but I can't guarantee that it was. But that was in 20, 
14, and that was the last time I had a fracture. That is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just phenomenal, Sean. So you also, you said you've been a therapist for 17 years. Four books by the time you were 30. Is that all? Come on. <laughs> well, you know, and here's where my uh, consummate professional goes into play. I'm like, well, only two of them were all mine. The other two were co-authored. So it's really two books by the age of 30. But I'm working on another one right now. Okay, so that would be number five total? That's how you want to count it, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, number three and two. Yeah. And um, your last one was Get Off Your Butt? Yeah. Okay. Now, I know there's so much stuff. One of my favorite things that I heard you say, I'm going to quote, you said, ideas are the shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I love that because you're – everything that you do is about empowering other people, but it's also about their disabilities. And like you said, on Halloween, nobody could see your disability because yours is very apparent, but we all walk around with them. We carry them. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they aren't equally, if not more so detrimental. And you said your a disability is just a refusal to adapt, whether it's your situation or something that happened to you or any of that. And that, if we would, you don't want to be pitied, and I completely understand that, but if we are going to pity you for your disability, imagine how much we'd be pitying everybody everywhere, because we all have them in one way or another. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that the worst drug is if you're frozen in potential. Yeah, so I said that pity is the worst drug on the planet. And when yes. The moment we have pity for ourselves okay. or others, we freeze them. We, we literally paralyze them and we might think we are doing that out of love like oh i i feel sorry for that guy i'm gonna give him money or i feel sorry for that that girl i'm gonna ask her out on a date or i feel sorry what happens is when you do something out of pity it always leads to resentment it's just a matter of time so this is why if you want to give somebody money because you want to give them money that's fine if you want to ask them out on a date that's fine but when you do something out of pity it's only a matter of time you will build resentment. And that's because it's an obligation is not a lasting driver. It's a temporary driver. And I'm always looking for lasting, self-sustaining energy, not short-term, you know, what is it called? Uh, combustible, you know, like I'm not looking for something to explode quickly and then not, not have any more oomph after that. Right. So you learned about pity as a kid with your mom and the egg timer. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that a little bit more. So my mom was very ingenious. She was ahead of her time uh, in the psychology field without even having a psychology degree. She just knew that it was okay to have the emotion of self-pity, uh, but just like any drug, you can't become addicted to it, you know? Uh, it's like sugars. Pity is like sugar, maybe in small doses, whatever, but, you know, when you become addicted to it, you become dependent on it, and you get into some serious problems. So my mom would set this egg timer, and she'd say, you get to feel sorry for yourself today, but today, you only get 15 minutes. And she'd set the timer, put it in front of me, and say, go. And then she'd walk out of the room, and they would piss me off to no end. Because... She was giving me access to pity. I didn't want access. I wanted her to tell me no so that I could rebel and have pity. And so it was very much a reverse psychology 
it also let me feel that feelings are okay, you know? Everything we've ever run toward or away from are just feelings. People are so afraid to feel rejected. We're so afraid to feel like failures. We're so afraid to feel abandoned. We're so afraid to feel uh, like we're going to die. We're so afraid to feel all these things. And then we do everything in our power to squeak around and, and, and jump through hoops to avoid those feelings. But if there's something I've learned in this lifetime, it's that you meet your destiny on the path you take to avoid it. So you can try all you want to get around those feelings, but they're coming for you. You might as well just surrender and do it on your terms, you know? If I could change gears for a little bit on that topic, I believe that people who ultimately get everything they want, or eventually, not that they get everything they want, but they get a lot of what they want, it's because they consciously choose pain. They choose pain. It's painful to work through an emotion to have a conversation about a breakup. It's painful to work through the emotions and realize you need to tell somebody you're, you're cutting them off. You're done with taking care of them. It, it, it takes pain to get into the gym when you'd rather be in your PJs and with your, you know, your Netflix binging and getting in that gym when it's dark out and it's 4.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning and, and you're hitting that gym all by yourself and you're feeling the weight on your shoulders and your back and, and your, your muscles are burning and you're thinking, why the hell am I doing this? Nobody else has to do this right now. I'm here by myself. And you try to talk yourself out of it. But once you get done with that workout, you get the strength for the rest of the day. You get the strength for actually for a few days and you get a long-term accumulative effect of, of strength overall. So I believe that people that get a lot of what they want, it's because they consciously choose their pain. And I think the people that are constantly feeling like they strike out, like the world's not fair, like their life sucks, everybody else gets a good life and screw them, that attitude comes from somebody avoiding pain. They are avoiding pain at all costs. I don't like to feel uncomfortable. That's why I don't go to the gym. I don't want to eat salad. I want to eat a burger. I don't want to eat this. I want to eat that. I don't want to have to tell this person that I'm done with them. I'll just keep being in an abusive relationship. And it's like, you know, you're trying to avoid the pain of, of, of doing what is going to take courage. And then you end up getting long-term something far worse than that, that, that short-term pain that you could have chosen on your terms. So I keep looking into this because I like the idea of pleasure and, and relief and peace. I'm all about that. And that's oftentimes on the other side of consciously choosing pain. You know, like my body is a great piece right now physically because I consciously chose for 90 minutes to work out this morning. So it's like peace is on the other side of that. You can't just have peace for peace sake. If you do, that's fine. Just know your muscles are going to atrophy and you're going to probably um, not have the strength to sit your ass up. Right on. I love your tangents. You can tangent anytime you want. You you started speaking at 11 on behalf of osteogenesis, gen, sorry, genesis imperfecta. Is that, did that kind of give you the bug to want to be in front of people? That was sort of your first experience on stage. Yeah, I definitely think it did. I put me on 
a public display. And at some point I realized I could get paid to be on public display and I liked that. Because at 17 you started motivational speaking and what, how did you make the shift of, because I have a friend with uh, cerebral palsy and her biggest, one of her biggest pet peeves is that people don't talk directly to her. They yeah. talk about her to other people. Um, oh, that's, I'll tell you something. I can interrupt you. Yes. That's her, that's not her fault, but that's her scenario to clean up. So I've learned from my mentors and people that taught me quite a bit that you have to directly address that issue yourself. You have to say, hey, I know you don't think I can understand you, but I can, and I'm going to need you to look into my eyes and speak to me like a human. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad or awkward, but if I didn't make this clear to you, you would keep doing it to others, and I don't want others to have to go through it either. Like, that level of, like, direct, loving intensity will pierce through their ignorance and hit them right in the heart where it should. Exactly. And also, just like you said, being stared at. And then you put yourself up on stage. You did the opposite. You, you took the most uncomfortable thing and, and capitalized on it. You did it on purpose. So what, what got you so drawn to that? And then therapy, and how do they connect? So first question first. Speaking chose me as much as I chose it. I tried on many occasions to leave the profession and like the mafia, they just kept pulling me back in. And you know, I would go and do other things. I would go sell network marketing for a while, or I would go in other ventures, other technology companies. And, and every time I would leave speaking, speaking would just show right back up at the door and say, hey, dumbass look, you have a gift here. The world needs this. I know you're being a big baby about it, but pay attention to us. And so the louder and louder that, that, that jovial spirit of the universe got to me, and finally I was like, all right, all right, well, we're going to do this. You know, me talking to the universe. We're going to do this. I'm going to need a lot more money. And then we said, okay, you got it. So I was able to charge more and more and more uh, to be able to do what I do now. And your, I don't know how new this is, it's new to me, but now you're offering courses on helping people public speak and you have your human connection formula. Yes. Which is pretty fantastic. So you have kind of, you've, you dove in and embraced the public speaking aspect and now you're helping to give it back in a different way. And that was probably a shift as well, wasn't it? Absolutely. So as a professional speaker, they call it a keynoter. Somebody that gets paid to do a 45, 45 minute to an hour and a half talk. Um, you know, you're not, I don't believe you're taken really seriously until you're over at least $10,000 per keynote. And I did that for years. And I got to see the world and share the stage with people like the Dalai Lama and, and U.S. presidents and you name it. It was just such an honor and a whirlwind of a career. However, at some point I thought, you know, when I go into an event, I am one of many speakers that the audience is hearing. What would it be like if I had the courage to be the only speaker and have the entire audience there because they just want to see me? 
and maybe I'll bring in some of my own guest speakers, but it's my show. I can control the venue, like where it's being held, what the content is, what the schedule is, what food is being served, what part of the country it's being held in. And, you know, yes, with that comes a lot more risk on my end. I have to, you know, I have to reserve all that. I have to plan all that. I have to have the staff and the volunteers and the upfront cash for all that. However, it is such a different experience to have an entire audience filled with people that individually paid to be there than showed up because their boss required them to be there. And that's when I started in 2014 entering into the public seminar business. I did my, I did a, I did a public seminar in 2007. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. I didn't do a good job. It wasn't profitable and I got scared and I left for seven more years. And then in 2014, I came back, did my next public seminar, and it was a huge success. And it was very profitable. It was very uh, enjoyable, very entertaining, lots of fun. And this will now be my, well, as far as speaker training is concerned, this year will be our fourth speaker training. And it is by far going to be the biggest, the best. And I am the most comfortable, you know, that's, that's the one element that I want to get across to your listener on the other end of this. It's going to sound cheesy and it's going to, uh, your brain's going to want to overlook it. My brain did when I first heard Jim Rohn say it many years ago. Jim Rohn was Tony Robbins' mentor and also an amazing speaker who has since passed on. And Jim said, don't work on your business. Work on yourself and the business will take care of itself. And that is so, so, so true. And I would even continue to riff on Jim Rohn's quote, and I would say, don't work on yourself. Just do things that scare the shit out of you. And I don't mean dangerous things like step in front of traffic. I mean like telling that person that you've always loved that you love them. Telling somebody goodbye who's owned you and you're done with. Uh, going on that trip to that country you've always wanted to visit but felt you didn't have the time, money, and energy. Um, adopting those children if you've always wanted to adopt children. Lean into that which scares you because I'm finding that that is the best form of personal growth. Yes, you can go to a seminar, read a book, listen to an audio podcast like this. That's going to help you and it's good and important and that's, that is a nice element to personal growth. But nothing will help you better then leaning into the experience of doing that which scares you most because that takes courage. And as my mentor, Dr. Paul Dombrowski, has taught me, that acts of courage build points in confidence. So every act of courage that you take, you gain points in confidence, no matter how it turns out. So I'll give you an example. I recently went to Africa. And while in Kenya, Africa, well, before I got to Kenya, I was really scared. And I know I'm going to sound like a very white, privileged, upper class kind of guy here for a moment, but I'm going to take that risk. I was scared to go to a country where they have diseases that they don't have in the United States. I was scared because I didn't know what the safety would be like. I didn't know how people would accept somebody with a disability. I didn't know about, you know, all kinds of things. And so I was scared. And yet I still felt my heart calling me because Mindy was like, Sean, it's my favorite place in the world. And you know that what I love, you love. So I leaned in, 
I took the vaccinations, even though I was scared to. I took the medicine, even though I was scared to. I got on the plane, even though I was scared to. And I landed, and the moment I got off onto the jet bridge and then into the terminal, and I started seeing the smiles of people who looked nothing like us in America, for the most part. And the, the energy, though, was so incredible. The, the personalities and the, the heart and the minds of people that were on the other side of the planet just pulled me in so much. And the confidence points just racked up into my energetic escrow. And when I came back, I was upgraded as a human being because I pushed through my fear. And I love Kenya. I'm going to live there part of the year now because I had so much fun. I love the people. I love the food. I love the animals. I love the scenery. I'm going to live there part of the year now. And when I came back, I made massive changes in my business. I closed down one business and I started up another because I'm like, you know what? You're a different human being. So therefore, what you were dragging with you in the past and old ways of thinking and old ways of doing, it's not going to serve you anymore now that you're an upgraded person. God, that's awesome. So magic happens outside of the comfort zone, of course. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned Mindy, who is a badass in her own right. Absolutely, she is. I mean, I know you know that, but I'm letting everybody know that. She's done some phenomenal stuff. You guys met in 2010 on Facebook. Was it a common friend? Our first date was 2009. December 27th. Uh, no, sorry, December 29th. Um, <clears throat> and uh, she had been in touch with me via Facebook. She was a friend suggestion. And I thought she was cute, so I hit accept. Didn't think anything of it. And then she was at a seminar, and the speaker was talking about me. And she thought, gosh, I think I'm Facebook friends with that guy. So that night, she went back to her hotel, hotel room. She opened up her laptop and the Facebook and said, hey, I'm at the seminar. They brought you up. I just realized we're about the same age. We're both from the same parts of Chicago. When I come back for a holiday or something, would love to get together with you. So being the big flirt that I was at the time, I said, well, I never turned down coffee with a cute girl. And she was thinking, uh, jackass, I wasn't thinking that way, but uh, whatever. So we went out in the end of that year, 2009, she came to my office for coffee. And what was funny is I just held the frame. Um, another way of saying it is I was very clear in my intention. My intention was to be romantic, not romantic, sexually intimate. And I held the frame very clearly. And I was also unattached. If she wasn't interested, that was fine. But uh, I wanted a kiss that day and I wanted other things later. And I was very clear about that. And she trusted me because on our first date, I said, you know, I would really like to sleep with you. And she was like, holy shit, what kind of guy says that on the first date? And, and I said, Sean Stevenson's the kind of guy. And, you know, it was a wonderful moment because even though we just kissed and, and she went on to her family party, it set the tone that I knew what I wanted in life. And I didn't need another friend. I had plenty of friends. And I was attracted to her, her mind, her body, her spirit. And I wasn't going to apologize for that. 
And that level of clarity and strength caused her to be attracted back. In fact, I believe that's when her brain switched from, oh, I think he's going to be like a colleague and a, and a friend to, holy crap, he's like stirring something inside of me. And that level of confidence, you know, it, it changed the course of my life. Or one could say that was the course of my life and that just opened me up to it. I don't know. But I can say it has been a wonderful, wonderful evolution with this woman because she has opened me up to things that I was way too small-minded and scared to have done on my own. Because she came from her own background and her own loves and her whole experience, which it really, uh, Mindy's phenomenal human being. So I didn't get any of the information on how forward you were. I was glad though, there's a couple of videos that you to address and she actually got a little pissed off at one point. Like, how can he meet your needs sexually? And you're like, how could I not? I'm a human being, I'm a man, I have the, all the same, all the circuits are firing the same way. And you guys actually, I'm, you were very polite about it, but you addressed that that's not an issue. Well, we were polite publicly. <laughs> <laughs> Privately, I think we had some uh, inappropriate words about that experience. Um, you know what? What it, what it came down to was a, a person who, with their own insecurities and their own issues that they brought to the table, projected them onto us. Mm -hmm. And I've done enough work on myself to know that there are no bad humans. There are humans that have shit they haven't worked through. And when a human doesn't work through their shit, they do what we call bad things. Um, and this young lady was just saying, you know, you're a public figure, Mindy, and if you don't mind me asking, but you open yourself up to this by being a public figure, uh, you know, do you get your needs met other places sexually? And what was so frustrating about that for her, it bothered her way more than me, was she was thinking, why the hell is A, that any of your business? Mm -hmm. B, why does society believe that sex has to be in a certain container, that you have to be a certain height and weight and have a certain kind of body shape to be sexually attractive. It really got to her at the core. I also believe that what was magical from it is that Mindy took a stand to the universe, like, hey, I love all of this man and I'm willing to uh, stand up to anybody's ignorance about why I love him. And, you know, they kicked her off Facebook because they kicked Mindy off Facebook because she publicly responded to that message. And at the end, I was very happy that I gave her this idea. Uh, either I gave her the idea or I thought it was a badass idea. I can't remember. But at the very end, she said, you know, sorry to make your message that was private public, but when you write a public figure, you open yourself up to this. So it's kind of like, yeah. Uh, turnaround fair play or whatever they call it and and of course she got the girl got a lot of harassment which in the end maybe we weren't as evolved as maybe we would be handling it today years later um but she got such harassment from our fans that she then reported to Min, mindy to facebook and they take mindy off kind of funny how that works however in the long run it, it did great things for mindy because 
her article about getting kicked off Facebook got her more public visibility in media than anything we've ever done uh, around that. And, you know, globally, millions and millions of people uh, watched that story unfold. And it, it set a precedent in society, hopefully, that that's like saying, if you see a short, fat, white girl with a tall, black man, be like, oh, well, he must be uh, only into fat chicks because he's black. Or she, you know, she must be into him because of the size of his penis. Or he must have a lot of money. He's an athlete. Like, stupid stereotypes. And are stereotypes accurate? Yeah, a lot of the times they are. But there's also a percentage where they're dead wrong. And as we own the fact that human beings make assumptions that are incorrect on a regular basis, then we can start to learn from each other. I loved it. I loved it because I'm sure people have questions just because they have questions, not because they're being rude. And also because you guys did address it. So what? She got kicked off Facebook. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that myself probably, but you know, like you said, she addressed it and it is infuriating and people are, they, we do look at, it is our own insecurities coming out sometimes when we ask those questions. Yeah. Now, and I think it's also a reflection of our, are issues with their own body and sexuality, you know? So Sean, you're correct in saying that a lot of people have issues with their own body and their own insecurities. That's totally, completely correct. And you've seen the backlash about that just because of who you are. And because like you've said, people stare at you every single day of your life. And it's not always positive. So what do you feel like in, in the therapy and the uh, public speaking and coaching you've done, what are some of the biggest insecurities that people have in life? What are you ridding the world of? Yeah, so let's just boil down what an insecurity is. An insecurity is a feeling, is a feeling of not being enough. Not tall enough, smart enough, sexy enough, educated enough, wealthy enough, important enough, powerful enough, eh, credentialed enough. Oh, I thought you were drinking a bottle of wine. That would have been epic. <laughs> no, I'm drinking water on my oh bottle. Oh, my God. I thought there was a bottle of wine. I'm right like, out of, right I'm out like, of the is messed up. We're doing a podcast, and she's drinking right out of the bottle of Merlot. Okay, so anyway. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so insecurity is that feeling that we're not enough. But the truth is we are enough. We just... We just don't let ourselves feel it. And I think a lot of insecurities come down to biology. You know, I'm, a, I'm both spiritual, but I'm also scientific. And the scientist in me believes that insecurity is an evolutionary hanging chad. Remember the election that was very controversial because the hanging chads the little pieces of paper that were sticking off the, the ballots that, that brought the, in question, did Al Gore win or not? Well, I believe insecurity is a hanging chad of the human condition where we have these evolved brains that have been around millions of years and we now have things like, you know, climate-controlled buildings and cars and airplanes and cell phones and computers. We have all these things, but yet our brains still are acting like we're running away from saber-toothed tigers, the most primitive part of our brain. And I also believe that 
for a long, long time, because we traveled in tribes, in groups, you wanted to be accepted or you didn't survive. And that's a deep-seated biological, biochemical experience that I don't think is going away anytime soon, but I'm here to rid the world of insecurity by educating people that we're all insecure. Like, that's how we rid ourselves of something, is by saying we all have it. The, it insecurity runs the show when you act like you have something that other people don't, or other people have something that you don't. Like, it's not true. I could take any person, no matter how big or small, president of a country, a billionaire, a celebrity, uh, or somebody who is homeless, living under a bridge, addicted to drugs, and it doesn't matter. I bring them into a room and give me enough time interviewing them and seeing them in their natural habitat, I will find where they're most insecure. It's just, and it's not a bad thing. It's, it's that feeling of, well, I belong. Will I get thrown out of the tribe? Will I be okay? And that insecurity, I think, comes down to biology. I think the two biggest factors of insecurity are around sex and money. Sex and money. Because sex is about replication and the keeping the species alive. And money is about survival. Is there enough food in the cave? And I would say, for the most part, if I can stereotype that the weight on the shoulders of men is in survival with money. The weight on the shoulders of women is sex with their bodies. And of course, we both have both issues going on at all times. But I think there's this constant conversation nobody wants to have that is going on in our minds of like, if I bring enough money, will I get enough sex? Or if I bring enough sex, will I get enough money? And I don't give a shit what you think about yourself at the end of the day, you are an animal who wants to make sure there's enough food in the cave and you can be making whoopee. I don't care who you are. So I'll debate you all day if I have to. I've seen human beings when they feel they're not pretty, when they feel that they are sexually rejected, they, they do some stupid things. They, they do things they regret. That's often that, I, I know for myself, my greatest insecurities were in my 20s. I didn't think I was ever gonna get laid. And I wanted to die. I hated being alive, not having sex. I hate it. And some people, they don't figure out, you know, getting laid is not their problem. It's getting paid. And money is their issue. And they feel like they need a man or they need their father or they need, they need the company. Or they, and getting paid is their fear. And some people have both. And some people have both at different times. And some people have both at different places with different people. Have you ever noticed that some insecurities show up with certain people but not others? It's because they're not triggered. The closer somebody is able to access your buttons, the more they are able to switch on your insecurities. And that means they're probably somebody you care about. We usually don't let strangers flip on our insecurities because we're like, look, you have very little value in my life. So if you don't like me, I can move on without you. That's the God honest truth. You look at marriages and um, the biggest issues stated that I've read about, one is communication. And I think we're all great at it and we all suck at it. I mean, and we're somewhere in there. And finances and sex. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe if we could talk about it a little bit better, it would it would smooth out somewhat. So what do you want to know? Let's let's uh, can we take this to a whole new deeper level? Yes, we can. All right. Ask me a question about either of those things for yourself. Okay, wow, this is great. Was there a certain amount of money you felt like you needed to make to, to prove your worth? I still haven't proven it. So you haven't made enough money. <laughs> well, here's the thing, because it's, when you try to get your worth with a dollar amount, you'll never get there. That's a, that's chasing the horizon. Um, whenever you try to get more from a place of less, you'll never get there. So like, it's one of those, if you let your net worth determine yourself with worth, you're screwed. So with that said, have I had nights where I strutted around the house cause I made a shit ton of money and I thought I was a badass? Yes. Have I had nights where I curled up in the fetal position and thought I was the biggest freaking loser cause I, couldn't pay my bills and what the hell was wrong with me? Yes. So does that answer that? I think, so when did you realize that your self-worth wasn't based on a dollar? Because that's a huge one for people. Well, I have to realize it every day. I have to remind myself. It's not like you, it's not like I've had these epiphanies and now like Sean's got his shit together and like he's above the human race. No, like I wake up in the morning, I pull out my journal. I did this this morning. I sneak out of my bed in the morning as not to wake Mindy. I go to the kitchen table, I pull out my journal, and I write three pages a day in the morning. I started my day. And I question myself about sex, money, uh, value, insecurities, fears, fantasies. Like I, I try to get my brain to dump on the paper so I can be free of this shattering box we call the brain. Look, the brain was not designed to make you feel good. The brain was designed to solve problems to keep you alive. Your heart was designed to help you be on your purpose. And when you're on your purpose, you feel good. Okay. So my next question would be, how'd you finally get laid? I finally got laid a couple ways. Uh, first, I paid for it. That didn't go well. <laughs> and I've never admitted that publicly. Oh, this is fantastic. Okay. And, you know, I thought it would make me feel okay, and it didn't. It didn't. It, it let me know that the biology worked, and that was all good, but so what? Uh, but the first time I got to have sex, and it was awesome, and it was some, somebody that, like, wanted to have an incredible interaction, it was because I found myself attractive. You can't get laid or paid if you feel like garbage. You just can't. It'll be a gross experience if you do it. That is amazing and true. And I'm glad that you figured out the biology word. I would imagine that you would have already known that. But I think there's also that fear of like, you know, yeah. like goes running away and, you know. That's I'm, amazing. I'm, I'm committed to a life now where it's like, I've done drugs. I paid for sex in the early days of my 20s when I was scared and lonely and honestly i don't think if i if i hadn't have done that uh i would have killed myself because i didn't know if i was even allowed to enjoy the experience of the body and you know i'm not a proponent of uh prostitution i am not 
saying that it is a healthy profession or that it's important. But, you know, I was in a dark space. And now that I'm about to turn 40 years old, I don't care if my mom and dad and my family uh, hear that that's how that happened. I, I don't care if the world knows because I'd rather everybody know the truth about me and then show me who's with, really with me, who's against me. Well, and that's the real raw you, and there's there's nothing to be embarrassed about. I want to go back, though, a little bit. You talked about the dark space. So you're a person, almost 40, who wasn't supposed to live through 24 hours. Now, I look at that as a mom. I have a daughter who is three days away from an abortion, and I convinced her birth mother not to get that abortion, and she's 15 years old now. That is a gift in a different way. That's a child, a person who wasn't supposed to be here, who clearly, despite whatever odds, her situation, your situation, you're here. And yet you had these moments. I mean, for me, and I know for your mom, your parents who were fantastic, like, God, there's a bigger purpose for you. You're here for something amazing and everyone is, but holy shit, Sean. So explain to me those dark moments that you had. At what time of my life? any of them or how often or when or what they were it doesn't matter so when i was 31 years old living at home feeling like the biggest loser that i was still sleeping in my childhood bed having my parents take care of me wondering if my life was going to just continue to be the disabled adult child living at home and no fault of my parents but i was not happy. I wanted freedom. I wanted independence. I didn't know if I could have it. Uh, I was scared to have it. I, and finally I got fed up with my life and I had to figure out who am I? And I was in the early days of dating my now wife, Mindy. And I just texted her one day and I said, how much do you trust me? She said, what, what's this about? I said, I need you to pack a bag. We're going away for a while. And she's like, where are we going? I said, I can't tell you. And she's like, well, how long are we going for? I said, I don't know. She's like, okay, I just made a bunch of plans in my, in my business. I, I can't leave. And I said, look, I'm leaving. If you want to come with me, that's fine. If you're not, I'm going to find somebody else. And she was like, let me go clear my schedule. And we went on a month-long journey, and we didn't tell anybody where we went. We were gone, and it was amazing. I was a vegan at the time and I tried eating meat. I got tattoos. I explored with drugs. I, I went on a rum springer as the uh, Amish would call it. And I, I went on a little bit of a rite of passage of like, who am I other than the goody two shoes, say no to drugs speaker vegan who lives at home with his parents. Wow. And I mean, I want to make it clear, you make it clear with most things that you say is that this is an evolution of you. Like you kind of um, alluded to earlier, it's not like it's a one and done. Oh, there, you're there. It's all over. We're good now. I have self-worth and value and it's never going to change because stuff happens. It makes us question ourselves all the time. But I know that you had, well, first there's something that we tell our kids. We tell our kids, you can be anything you want to be, which I've always thought is a lie. Everybody tells their kids that. No, I, I think it's a lie. A lot of people do. Oh, you, there's nothing you can't do, and it's bullshit. Uh, you wanted to play for the White Sox. You're a White Sox fan. 
But what I think is important is that we do have limitations. Yours are more obvious than mine maybe, but I have just as many. But you got to do something with the white socks and people can watch a video about that, but I wanna go a little deeper on that. You threw the opening pitch. So tell us about that a little bit, like deeper about that, what it's like to know you can't do anything that you want to do, but you can have what's next best. Yeah. I, can I reframe it beyond that? Yes. Yes, you can. Well, you can have anything you want if you're willing to let go of how it shows up. Because it's not about the second best. I'm, screw the party prize, the, the door prize. I want the prize prize, but I have to let go of, I have to detach from how it'll appear. So for instance, Mindy made a whole list of all the things that she wanted in a man. And she said, and I don't want him to be taller than 5'8". Well, she wasn't very specific. <laughs> she got what she wanted, right? <laughs> in a three foot package, right? And so you can have anything you want if you're willing to let go of how it shows up. You know, like some people are just so attached to like, my life has to show up exactly as I say. Well, the universe has other plans sometimes. Look, I believe we are co-creating our existence. It's a co-creation. There's your plans and then there's the universal God, energy, spirit, whatever you want to call it, plans. And sometimes they overlap and they're in unison and sometimes they're not. But I can tell you one thing, you will be in a lot of pain if you only are happy when the universe aligns with your plans. Sometimes you're in hospital rooms clinging for your life. Sometimes you're crying your eyes out in the back of a car because you just got dumped. Sometimes you're hugging a, pan a pillow, scared because someone you love just died and you don't know what life is like without them. Sometimes you are angry and you want to put your fist through a wall. Sometimes you are screaming in the rain outside, why the fuck is this happening to me? Like, let's just get real. I am done playing out a little fairy tale life that people think I have or that they think they need to have. There's life. It's beautiful. It's messy. It's playful. Amen to that. You were challenged. You're a big proponent for coaching, which okay. I, am, I am also. I love my coach and I love being a coach. And you had a coach that asked you, what were you born to do? Mm -hmm. And you said to rid the world of insecurity, which you said on the podcast earlier. What does that look like for you? Well, it first comes down to education. Educating the whole human race that we are all insecure. The next thing is educating people that the, that the cure to insecurity is self-care. Taking incredible care of your mind, your body, your spirit, your health, your wealth, your relationships. When you do impeccable self-care, like at my office, my team is amazing. And I know that self-care is, is a way for them not to be hijacked by their own insecurities. So we bring in massage therapists. We bring in, bring in tasty food. We do dance parties. We go on field trips. Why? Because I want them to have great self-care so that their insecurities can peacefully sleep and be not running the show. Like I, 
I've been an NLP trainer, a hypnotherapy trainer. I've gone through Landmark, and, and I've gone through Brian Katie and Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra and all these different courses, and they're all amazing. And I've read hundreds of self-help books, and I've been interviewed probably well over 2,000 times, and I've been on stage for hours upon hours teaching myself. And you know what? At the end of the day, I've learned that we all just want to feel good. And the means at which you go about feeling good is going to determine the course of your life. Do you reach out for a Snickers bar? Or do you reach out for your gym membership? Do you reach out for a good book? Or do you reach out for a heroin needle? Do you reach out for going to the soup kitchen? Or do you reach out for the casino? Like it's all, I'm not here to judge. I'm just telling you what you do to feel good is going to determine the course of your life. And you, in order to do this, I think you said somewhere that you couldn't do it on your own. It's a pretty big job. Yes. So you're assembling an army of world thought leaders. And what, do you have that mapped out? Is that in the process? Is it a secret? No, it's not a secret at all. So I run an event and it's uh, coming up this year. I don't know when this interview goes out, but August 18th through the 20th. And I teach people at this live event. It's called 10K Speeches. People can go to 10kspeeches.com and I teach people how to become world thought leaders. Specifically, how do they get their message, their expertise, their strategies out into the world? Because when people are taking their passion and shining out into the world, that is going to then allow my passion, which is to rid the world of insecurity, to be attached to that. You know, I get to kind of like, like in Facebook, like tag the photo of their photo with my message that we're all insecure and that self-care is the cure to insecurity. But to come full circle on all the things that I've done with self-help, I've learned that insecurities don't go away. And anybody that tells me, oh, I, I have the technique that removes them forever, go fuck yourself. No, you don't. No one does. You just don't. What you have is something that maybe keeps you motivated maybe keeps you inspired, maybe keeps you uh, pumped, but take about a month of not taking care of yourself. Don't do any self-care. Let's watch what happens. It's a nightmare, and that's my biggest thing, too. What I don't understand is why is self-care, for a mom, it's a coupon book on Mother's Day. It's like an extra special thing. It's like a, wow, you did a good job. You deserve it. Like you have to earn it. And that is bullshit. Self-care should be self-care every day, all day. It's the, you can't give without filling yourself up first. Put the oxygen, oxygen mask on. Mask. Yep. Yeah. And people don't understand that when they're not taking care of themselves, they're only doing a disservice. And I'm, I'm a runner and my kids will look at me and say, I think you need to go for a run. And that doesn't mean I'm being a bitch or a bad mom. It means, you know, you're, you're a better person when you dial yourself in. Absolutely. And with that said, I need to pee and eat. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Self-care. Thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate all of your time. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate what you do for the world. You were by far the most researched and thorough interview I've had in decades. So thank you. Yes, you're welcome. And hopefully I'll see you in Tempe. Absolutely. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. 
Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.